Uh, I'm feeling pretty fragile, I gotta say. I limped my way over here, limped my way across town today, you know, back from my sojourn in the Algonquin wilderness, um, which I somehow got through, you know, uh, five days and six nights of brutal canoeing and portaging. I mean, uh, this is the, I guess, the third expedition I've ever done like this, by far the most ambitious. It's always me and my buddy Dan that do these, and this was the most ambitious one we tried. Got through all of that, complete with, you know, some some of uh, the kind of harrowing experiences that come with the terror. Territory. I'll come back to that in a second. And um, wouldn't you know it, when I was getting back on the subway in Toronto, like literally getting getting on the subway car, I felt like a, I don't know, a creak in uh, one of my toes and I've been limping ever since. Well, fitting in a way, it just goes to show you, you know, never leave the podcast. <laughs> Karma will catch up with you. Thanks, by the way, to Jesse Brenneman for filling in while I was away. Enjoyed that episode very much, particularly the jokes at my expense uh, off the top. But I gotta say, it was uh, it was nice uh, to be away from everything, you know, including the podcast. Honestly, just everything. Uh, you didn't see the Ted Cruz clip, did you? That clip of him <laughs> drinking drinking beer. I, I heard, yeah, I heard part of it. And with the, what this is, some new right wing bullshit culture war controversy where it's like the libs want to make us drink only two beers. They want to make it illegal to drink three beers. Is that about the crux of it? Yeah, I think there was some recommendation from somebody somewhere. That was the crux of it. This is old news by now, but there was it was the rather lynchian video of him standing in front of like a bunch of you know old beer gutted men and them all in unison in in oh synchronicity lifting up a beer and, and drinking it. right so it's like that genre of sort of performative right-wing culture where we're like you know on the fourth of july alex jones will tweet a picture of himself with like a massive tray with like 50 steaks or whatever and it's like the libs aren't taking away my red meat yeah giving yourself scurvy shooting, to own the libs sh- shooting bottles of bud light or whatever it is ceiling fans i gotta tell you it's hot in texas we don't want to get rid of our ceiling fans and now these idiots have come out and said drink two beers a week. That's their guideline. Well, I got to tell you, if they want us to drink two beers a week, frankly, they can kiss my ass. Anyway, it was very nice to get away, I have to say. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm locked into doing this at least once a year from now on. It is a really special kind of trip. This was the most ambitious one uh, Dan and I had, had, had ever done. I mean, the first day we covered almost 30 kilometers, mostly canoeing on the first day, very little portaging, probably less than a kilometer. Basically, like, first day, we're, we're pretty much canoeing from, like, I don't know, Mississauga to, like, East Toronto or something like that. Second day, obscene amount of portaging. Like, we really kind of overloaded ourselves that day. It took us about seven hours. We left the big lake we were on on the first night. Found this amazing campsite, actually, on that lake. You know, we realized there weren't many people on the lake, or there was hardly anybody, and no one in the part of the lake we got to, the eastern arm. And so we're paddling around. We're stopping at various campsites. And it's like, ah, this is okay or whatever. And like, maybe we'll check out one more. We get back in the canoe. All of a sudden, there's this like massive bald eagle and it just goes and flies over to the opposite shore. Just this thing is like the king of the lake. Goes up on this big perch, this like uh, massive pine tree. You see there's a campsite right next to it and it's like, well, if the bald eagle's taken us there, we might as well go. And yeah, the campsite was fucking amazing. It had like this incredible view of the lake. It was like secluded. So, you know, case of rain, but also open. It was near the portage. We're going to the next day. Uh, Fantastic. Front and loaded all the portaging the next day, just went across multiple big lakes, all these kind of smaller inner lakes that just have nobody on them. Some of them are so small, they don't even have campsites. Uh, we get to this big lake near the middle of this sort of northwestern part of the park. That's where we were, uh, this this lake called Maple Lake. And uh, my buddy decides that after seven hours of paddling, uh, he'd kind of like to see a little more of the lake. And I'm like, fuck this. I, I don't, you know, I'm setting up the campsite. I'm having a shot of whiskey. Um, I'm not getting back in the canoe. And... Uh, 
Comes back about an hour later. He's decided he's going to go off and I'm going to go look at that island across the way. Comes back, <laughs> just stripped down to his boxer shorts. This look on his face like he's just been through the most like harrowing experience. Uh, sort of calmly explains to me. I don't know why I say calmly. He was pretty rattled, but just kind of explains to me in a very matter of fact way that after this very still day across the water, and the portaging that day was brutal, but the water was fine um, everywhere we went. Uh, he'd gone to this island, he'd gone around, a gust of wind had knocked him clean off the canoe, the canoe had filled with water, it had stayed upright, he managed to rescue his phone, which was in his pocket, no idea why he brought it with him, put it back in the canoe, so it's just his phone is in the canoe getting sloshed around with the water, he's probably 50 meters out from the shore of this island manages to paddle his way back over there uh you know he's like fully clothed so he's kind of got to like get undressed because it's like very difficult he thinks he's gonna have to swim or whatever only when he gets to the island does he realize that his paddle is nowhere to be found okay <laughs> so i miss this entire saga because i'm setting up the camp i mean he's no more than like two or three hundred meters away apparently he called to me at one point couldn't hear it you know it's a big big lake at one point, I looked I looked out and I did see the canoe was kind of like spinning around in the water, but I thought he was just practicing maneuvers. Like I thought he was just practicing like, you know, different strokes or whatever. But anyway, yeah, he gets back and he's just like, yeah, we go, we go, we're down to one paddle. So we were pretty tired anyway that day. And we were thinking like, well, we might stay. We, we were on this island campsite and we're thinking, you know, this lake's pretty cool. Maybe we'll stay here an extra day, just kind of like recharge and then sort of like double up the distance the next day. And uh, we're like, well, now we have something to do because we're in this absolutely massive lake. We're not going to find the paddle. But like, what else do we have to do except try to find the paddle? So we kind of guessed based on like which way the wind was blowing when it knocked him out of the canoe, like where the paddle might have ended up. We went along the shore for about 90 minutes, miraculously, like no leads. Then miraculously, this little white streak appears in the water about 300 meters offshore. I did not let myself believe it until... It was in my hand that that was the paddle, but it was unbelievable. If, if you saw how big this lake was, the idea that you would ever find something as small as a paddle, unbelievable. I won't run through the whole trip, but then, uh, you know, suffice it to say, uh, a, a couple days later, the second last day we're in the park, uh, my buddy's using this paddle and it snaps in two. So again, we're down to one paddle and uh, we were able to do some kind of amateur blacksmithing. Like we sort of got the metal, like because it was an aluminum paddle, we got it kind of soft by putting it in this raging fire and we were able to kind of like jam it back together and duct tape it. It held up, you know, we had like 25 kilometers uh, on the final day to push through. It held up through maybe like 16 of those. And then, yeah, the last uh, few hours, I'm just like paddling ferociously with my not broken paddle from the front. I've probably never been so exhausted in my entire life. Amazing kind of trip. You know, we really are privileged in Canada and Ontario, particularly. There's only a few places in the world where you can really, I mean, you can, you know, you can go canoeing in all parts of the world, really. But it's only really on the Canadian Shield where you have these massive networks of kind of large and medium and small interlocking lakes uh, that don't really have kind of a current running between them. So it's absolutely perfect for this kind of trip. I find all kinds of amazing things happen out there. Just like what happens to your sense of time, the fact that like the trip always feels simultaneously too short, but then also like by the time you leave, it's like we've been here for months. Like this has been like, I can't remember what life was like when it wasn't doing this. And does that make you reconsider? a few things well it's always a part of me where i'm just like well what if i just like sort of like didn't come back from one of these what if i just lived kind of like, like jack this? 
Nicholson yeah. and the passenger and just uh, <laughs> just go and go and go and just never come back. Become like Grizzly Man. But I don't know. There there is something just intensely relaxing about it, even though like it's you know it's not to call it relaxing is a bit absurd because you're just like pushing yourself to your absolute physical limit, particularly with the portaging. It is just absolutely brutal. You look at a map and you're like, okay, so there's like a 1500 meter portage. That's not that far. You know, canoe's 56 pounds. That's going to be too bad. And then, yeah, you're just like more physically uncomfortable than you've ever been in your life for like the 30 minutes that that's going on. But I don't know. I was thinking about why this this type of trip, this type of adventure seems to do so much for me. Um, You know, I had a lot of moving around growing up. And as an adult, I think as a kind of overcompensation for that, you know, all the all the commuting and sort of living in multiple residences and kind of, you know, after my parents got uh, divorced, sort of having two separate, you know, existences, they, they never really lived that close together. So there's a lot of driving around back and forth and kind of like separate lives and separate, you know, I got certain books, certain toys in one place and certain ones in the other place, etc., In my adult life, I think I've overcompensated for that a little bit. I've been very fixed, you know. Ever since September 1st, 2008, when I came to Toronto, you know, moved in to residency. He remembers the date, folks. Well, it was the the first day of frosh in 2008. But ever since then, you know, I've, I've never lived within a, you know, I've always lived within kind of a few city blocks of just like that point, like the middle of the St. George campus of U of T. I've always been, I mean, I can see, I can literally see from my balcony, the quad outside Hutton House where I lived in first and second year. I don't know, maybe this doesn't really make sense. Perhaps this is one of those kind of uh, reverse engineered explanations for something. But there's something about the experience of this kind of canoe camping across large distances that is kind of a strange synthesis of the two different ways in which I've lived my life. Because you're moving around, right? You're rarely staying more than one, maybe two nights in a specific place. The thing is, though, while you're there, you know, you arrive at a site and you decide, okay, this is our campsite now. You know, you build this little outpost in the wilderness. And it's funny how quickly, like, all the little divots in the ground, the distinct natural character of the of the site or whatever, how quickly you bond with that and how soon it is that you feel fixed in this, like, little patch of the wilderness. And then there's always this kind of faint hint of tragedy, you know, the next morning when you get up and you pack everything up and you're like, okay, time to move on to the next one. But there's something about that. I find it a very uh, satisfying experience, for want of a better word. I'm not sure how well I'm articulating this, but I think that's one reason why I find this type of trip so uh, so cleansing. And of course, everything is just so incredibly beautiful. You see so many uh, animals. There's hardly any people. Like when you get beyond sort of the outer lakes, and usually it's just whatever arm of the outer lake that's kind of closest to the edge of the park. You might see some canoes, and then after that, you can go. You can go days without really seeing anybody. But you do see, you know, otters, great blue heron. There was a moose that we think visited us during the night, but we did not get to see it, unfortunately. There are black bears, about 2,000 of them in Algonquin Park. But, you know, black bears are very shy. This would be the difference with grizzly man. A black bear is probably not going to kill you, but or even you're probably not even going to see it. A grizzly bear uh, might. And apparently if you do this type of trip in like Northwest Territories, the Yukon, you got to bring a shotgun. So I don't... That won't be any trouble for you, will it? You've got them all lined up on your wall. <laughs> anyway, uh, absolutely amazing trip. I cannot recommend it enough. If you do it, come up to Ontario, try Algonquin Park, Killarney, Lake Superior Provincial Park. You can't go wrong. Just be prepared to be uh, completely exhausted and also energized at the same time. Amazing. Can't get enough. 
Well, before we get to the movie, I'll tell you a little bit about where my head's been at this week. I have been preparing for the uh, Toronto International Film Festival. I haven't been preparing. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't been doing squats. You say say preparing, yeah. It's like I'm picturing two things. I'm picturing a sort of Rocky montage. You're getting up, you're breaking raw eggs into a cup. Or maybe your preparation would be more zen than that. Like you're just in the lotus position in the foothills. You're you're sitting in a chair for (laughs) for like two hours at a time, four times a day. Yeah. Yeah, that's how you prepare. But no, I've seen a, I've seen a couple movies already at sort of early screenings, and the the festival is going to start this week. And you know, I've been following the fall film festival season with great interest. First of all, it's been heavily affected by the SAG and WGA strikes, so a lot of actors have not been able to promote their movies. The ones that have have been for movies that have SAG exemptions. So, for example, the company Neon and I think A twenty four as well, both like have agreed to SAG's demands, so the people with those movies can promote them. But then there are other things like, you know, there are weird loopholes like the closing night film at the Toronto Film Festival this year is a documentary about Sylvester Stallone. And uh, speaking of Rocky, and he will be there because it's a documentary. Uh, Now, I will just say I've seen on Sylvester Stallone's Instagram, he's been promoting Expendables 4 very hard. So I don't see him following the rules. Is he pro-union? I feel like probably not. Right. I I think I think politically (laughs) dot dot dot. That's what I think about him. Um, but there's still a lot of action going on. I mean, uh, as we record this, uh, the new Woody Allen film, Coup de Chance, is playing at Venice. Uh, he's your favorite filmmaker, right? You were just telling me <laughs> off, Mike, God you think he's a really great guy and innocent of all charges. I think, I think, I think I'm paraphrasing, but it's close. I don't, I don't know anything about this movie. I'm just hearing about it for the first time. The views of Will Sloan do not represent the views of management. I, I, that's not my views. I'm simply quoting, but, what, but it's just quoting. But I, I don't know anything about it. Either. Either. I've, I don't I don't know what coup de chance even means. Uh, so that's been happening over in Venice. What, what, Woody Allen, he made um, he made anything else, right? That's his big movie. Yeah, with Jason Biggs. Yeah, um, and ants. <laughs> that won't be at Toronto though. It's a very competitive fall festival season. You know, you've got Venice, Toronto, and the New York Film Festival. Not to mention Berlin and Cannes at other times of the year. And you know, these festivals really vie for the big A list stuff. Your Martin Scorsese's, your David. Finchers. I have felt, you know, TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, has always, I mean, you know, to put it accurately, it was started in the 70s by three businessmen who just wanted to get the film industry to Toronto. It was started without a particular identity. And it's great because they succeeded. They did get the film industry to Toronto. But over time, there have been many efforts to to create an identity for it. It used to be called the Festival of Festivals. When was it called that? I've never known it as that. Like up until the 90s, I think. Really? Um, It was called the Festival of Festivals because they would show the best of other festivals. Um, But then they started to get more and more world premieres. Then they started to kind of pivot their brand around the idea of we're the launch pad to Oscar. Movies like American Beauty. (laughs) One of your favorites. (laughs) Uh, I I think you were the one actually who was saying how much you liked it when you're off mic. You were saying you really like Kevin Spacey and also that he got a real raw deal <laughs> I think I think those were your words. Uh, you know, stuff like that would premiere at TIFF. Um, and Harvey Weinstein loved TIFF. 
Yeah, because I think they would just play whatever he wanted. <laughs> uh, again, saying this as neutrally as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of wonderful people at TIFF, a lot of great stuff. But it's a festival that, you know, over the last few years, as there have been huge changes to the film industry, huge changes to exhibition and distribution, huge changes to, I don't know, the Oscar race and things like that, the sorts of movies that get into the Oscar race. I think TIFF has had another identity problem. And, and they're losing out on a lot of, like, really good stuff to the other festivals. Now, I'm very excited for TIFF this year because there's a ton of stuff that is good. Like just below the gala presentations, you know, great filmmakers like Frederick Wiseman, Wang Bing, Catherine Bria, uh, Jean-Luc Godard's last short film will be playing. Uh, Miyazaki's new film will be oh, playing. Wow. That's probably their biggest get. Yeah. yeah, I look forward to that one. A lot of good stuff. Um, but, you know, the galas are typically have not been so great in recent years. And I'll just tell you two of the like huge events, you know, two of the flagpole events. They have an award, the Norman Jewison Award for like Canadians in in film or something like that. Canadians who have made an impact on the global stage, which is perfect for TIFF because it's a sort of like businessy kind of award. It's like oh, you're telling me we didn't win? No, <laughs> thank you. No, no, they're giving it to the director of Night at the Museum and, and <laughs> right, Big right. Fat Liar and uh, yeah, Night at the Museum is pretty good. I don't know Pink Panther with uh, Steve Martin. <laughs> Right. Which has some good, you know, uh, I want to buy a hamburger. <laughs> you remember that? That was pretty funny. So he's getting it. And then there's going to be a documentary at the festival about Nickelback. Oh, which God. I th- Which is great. It, it's, who is that for? Well, is Nickelback, you know, there's there's as Imagine a, a Venn diagram of the average like TIFF attendee and then people who like Nickelback. I don't think there's a lot of people in that in that middle section. I mean, what it reeks of to me is some boardroom somewhere where they're like, okay, who can we get? What can we get? Um, Getting Nickelback is not worth it. Well, I would agree. One of Canada's worst exports. And I think it's unbecoming of the con of Canada. Oh my God. You know, yeah. that's what I think. Nickelback. Nickelback. Um, but I do like that, you know, it's a very crowded and competitive festival season and, and TIFF has like kind of put its flag in the ground of like, okay, we're going to celebrate the bad stuff. <laughs> we're going to celebrate like the, the shit culture. Not, 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 to, not to belabor this point. I just want to add one more thing here because I know saying Nickelback is bad is, is old hat at this point. But I think the way that you know Nickelback is really bad is that it has been impervious to ironic attempts to like reclaim it. Like if Nickelback, if there was any redeeming qualities to Nickelback's music, some hipsters would have figured out how to be like, no, Nickelback's fucking epic. What are you talking about? I Hasn't ha- happened. I won't actually, happen. I don't know. I think this is a harbinger. I think it will happen. And I think oh, I think they'll get in. That's dark. I, and no disrespect to this band because I like them more than Nickelback. But the way that Rush nowadays, it's kind of like people are like, yeah, you know, you got to kind of hand it to those guys, you know? Well, they, they, whatever. They, li- they're, they're real musicians. I, like, so I don't hey, know. I not, like I'm not Rush. their biggest fan. But I'm just you saying know, that like, you tight. know, for years and years and years, they were a bit of a punchline, mm-hmm. right? And now I think they've almost kind of like, you know, like politicians and ugly buildings. Everything gets respectable (laughs) if it lasts long enough. Right. (laughs) To quote another filmmaker who I think uh, I think you were also saying you think he's he's a really good guy, too, and and a nice man. And (laughs) so anyway, I do look forward, though, all kidding aside, uh, the Toronto Film. You think about the Toronto Film Festival is like it has it has some of the best stuff ever in it. It's got Wavelengths, which is the best experimental and sort of hard art cinema lineup in the world. It's got Midnight Madness with the cult movies. 
always very fun. And, uh, you know, many of your great international auteurs. But I do think Sean Levy is a statement. <laughs> oh, and I, I would be so sad if it went out of business, just to be clear. I'm pro-TIFF. <laughs> I love TIFF. I want to get that little disclaimer in there. I've, I have many happy memories of TIFF, but I'll tell you one that's always kind of stuck with me and like not for good reasons, because just to this day, I feel so bad for the filmmaker. But the screening of this, uh, of this film it was pretty good. It was about this ultra-Orthodox woman and just this kind of very uh, repressed and difficult life she had, but it was very, very well done. And in the Q&A, which like, you know, always the first question, the Q&A, you got to brace yourself for, you're going to wince a little bit. And then the second and the third and, and the fourth and, and every the other question. single, this is more of a comment than a question kind of thing. But uh, you had the first question, don't remember what it was, but it was one of those like hack questions or whatever. The second one, you know, is behind me. So me and the people are there with, we're turning around to like locate the source of this. And we just hear this noise, okay? Like a pop or something. The kind of sound that you'd associate with like, I don't know, a magician making like a rabbit disappear or something. We turn around, the director who'd been on stage is just no longer visible we're like okay what has just happened what happened what happened and then we start noticing that the people that are on stage and also the people in the front row there's uh some looks of concern starting to appear on their face we realize what happened is she fell off the stage the stage had like somehow like an eight foot drop she fell off the stage and i guess her like ankle got twisted or like it was oh, she had no. a really bad injury and oh, she no. she couldn't do the rest of her q a it was her first ever film it was very well done and uh, yeah, they just had to kill the Q&A. And I, feel, I still feel so bad about it. Such a painful memory to think back to. Well, I can't top that story, but I have had many wonderful TIFF memories over the years. I mean, you know, I've just been going for like probably close to 15 or 20 years since sort of my later years of high school. I would go, well, I saw a slacker uprising, the, Mike, <laughs> the Michael Moore film at TIFF with him in attendance. And, and uh, you know, even though we've never had Michael Moore on this podcast, Will, you did get a photo with him. That was at TIFF, right? A that few was, years that ago? was at a party that John Sumley was kind enough to bring me as his plus one to that for Fahrenheit 11.9 and I, I did say hi to Michael Moore and tell him that I've been following him my whole life which is true and I got, he was kind enough if anyone knows Michael Moore tell him to come on Michael and us he follows me on Twitter I mean I, I haven't worked up the courage to ask him although I do want to say don't like at him on Twitter. Don't don't no, no, don't no, do no. that. No, no, we mean if you actually if know. you actually Not, know. Yeah, him. yeah. We don't want to like bomb his manchies or anything <laughs> no, like that. No. I mentioned the wavelengths program and the Midnight Madness program. I mean, you know, some of my fondest memories are at both of those. I mean, Midnight Madness. They used to have it at uh, the Ryerson Theater, which is not named that anymore. Um, <laughs> The T-Maps Theater, perhaps. Yeah, the yeah. TMU Theater, the I guess. The formerly known as Ryerson. And I mean, it was super exciting to be like 18 and at university for the first time. And I remember one of George A. Romero's zombie movies was playing there. And it's like, he was there. Wow. I mean, you know a little kid from the suburbs seeing, you know, one of my favorite filmmakers. It was just so exciting. Or like at, at Wavelengths, I mean, I've seen a few things in Wavelengths that have just like really blown my mind over the years. None more so than in 2012, I believe it was, when I saw a movie called Stray Dogs by the great Taiwanese filmmaker Tsai Ming Lang, who, you know, he's what you would call a minimalist filmmaker. And he's somebody who is very much on the precipice of now just making movies that would show on the wall at a gallery. Uh, he's a great filmmaker, one of my favorites, but there was this movie called Stray Dogs where it's 140 minutes long or so that it has maybe like 30 or 40 shots in it. They just last forever and ever. And the last shot is like 12 minutes long. And it's just these two people standing looking at something off screen. And watching that in a theater broke something in me permanently. It was like, I cannot 
I cannot believe what this movie is doing. I was like, I can't believe that I'm in this shot right now and there's no roadmap for this. There's no, you know, you think, you see most movies and you're like, I know the structure of this scene. I know the structure of a movie, but you're in this shot and it's shot on digital. So it's not even the length of a reel of film. It could go, it could go forever. And you're just, and you're just like, you know, staring at this until it almost becomes unreal. And something about that, I feel like permanently changed how I view the medium, like in a positive way. I got one more that's a lot less profound, but uh, it's something I think back to fondly a lot is uh, when there was that year where, where Werner Herzog had two films at TIFF. He had Salt and Fire, and then he had Into the, in- is Into the Inferno, the volcano that's movie. That's correct, yeah. Fantastic documentary. I think uh, certainly the best of his recent documentaries. But yeah, it was just one day after another, basically. Uh, Salt and Fire was a fiction film with your favorite movie stars, Michael Shannon and... Lawrence Krauss is that is that who <laughs> yeah Lawrence Krauss that the like the sort of yeah disgraced b-stream new atheist guy but I remember walking into 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 the inferno and we just like turn the little corner in the passageway and all of a sudden there's this like unmistakable Teutonic baritone it's like yeah there's Werner Herzog he's standing there just uh, you know talking to somebody very I, cool I, I met him once I just remember like I'm sitting there in the waiting area and he comes in and sort of shaking hands and I was just like I don't think I've ever been starstruck in in exactly that way where it's like this this shouldn't be possible. It's like this is the guy from Burden of Dreams, you know. <laughs> this is the guy who was he. Would, this guy was with Klaus Kinski on the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. and like how yeah. how are we occupying the same space? <laughs> yeah. It's as if it's as if like Captain Ahab came in. <laughs> Well, folks, we do have a movie for you. Um, God, boy, do we ever. We've been, I guess we've been trying. Another another one of those politics movies today. I guess we've been trying to avoid it. I just want to say Luke suggested this one. Oh, man, I'm so happy that I did. Let's dispense with any introduction. It's The Contender from the year 2000. War is the natural extension of politics. Now, in this war, there, there will be casualties. So help me God. Not among us. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Vice President-designate Lane Hansen. The president today has nominated Senator Lane Hansen to fill the vacancy left by the death of the vice president almost three weeks ago. It's the job of you two to make sure that that confirmation gets through. I'm not confirming a woman just because she's a woman. Runyon is going to come after me with all guns blazing. Can we ask for basic fairness? Of course you can we do have it confirmed that it's her. It's like some meta hustler. Ryan has been looking for stuff that the feds wouldn't even touch. She was putting on a sex show. So I remember when The Contender came out, it was critically acclaimed, uh, nominated for a few Oscars. It was one of those one of those movies that both Ebert and Roper could agree upon, you know? Uh, they both really liked it. And it's been suggested a few times over the years. I thought it would be better. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the reasons we watched this, we, we had a few proverbial contenders this week, prospective movies we're going to watch. And we kind of thought, well, it'd be good if like, you know, one thing we talked about was sort of like unironically, like kind of good. And we, we didn't think that this was going to be like a brilliant movie, but we had fun, more fun than we expected a few weeks ago when we watched The Ides of March, which is a movie that purports to have a lot on its mind, doesn't really, but it's like, there's so many great performances. It's just such a tight movie. You know, it was, it was, it was kind of fun to watch nonetheless. Very amusing at times. You know, there's a 
scene between Ryan Gosling and uh, and George Clooney where the actors are actually just kind of like overpowered for the scene. Like they're more powerful than the material. And that was kind of fun to watch. We were hoping this movie would be something similar. Uh, unfortunately, the contender is absolute dog shit. And what is interesting about it is to kind of go back in time to when this movie came out and just to imagine the culture that watched this and thought, wow, what a what a profound intervention this is. This is a movie that I would say, you know, purports to be about the way politics treats women and the double standard, but it is not even that. Uh, what it actually is, is a movie about how partisanship has gone too far and we're too tough on politicians who are just humble public servants trying to get along for the rest of us. And, you know, the well's been poisoned politics has become salacious and tabloidy and that's uh pretty much the movie there is a crisis in the republic a lame duck president played by jeff bridges i'm not going to get too worked up figuring out who the character names are as far as i'm concerned he's just jeff bridges uh but he's Pre- president president evans i i literally just said i don't care <laughs> what the he's a, he's a democrat in his second term that, six that's months right. left in his second term. that's right he's a lame duck and has his final grand gesture as his swan song as they say uh he wants to nominate a woman the first woman ever as his vice president. His sitting vice president has has died very suddenly. So there's this kind of odd scenario where he's got to pick a new vice president. Now there's another strong candidate, Governor Hathaway, played by William Peterson, who is very much the favorite of the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Sheldon Runyon, played by Gary Oldman. But the governor, uh, that's William Peterson again, remember, uh, he is caught... Well, not in a scandal. Uh, He's caught in an incident. He becomes a folk hero. He's out fishing one day and a woman drives her car off the dock and he tries to save her. He jumps in, tries to save her, but he doesn't get her in time. She dies. Though he becomes a folk hero for his heroic actions, President Bridges says it's it's just too much of a chappaquiddick situation, even though, as he says, it's the opposite. Unlike Ted Kennedy, he actually went in and tried to save her. Nevertheless, it's seen by the president as too much of a chappaquiddick type situation. But really, this is just an excuse. The chairman wants the Democratic senator from Ohio, Joan Allen, as Lane Billings Hansen, as his VP. She's a perfect candidate. She is center-right. In fa- she's, she's a former Republican. Her dad is a Republican senator or congressman. Governor, actually. Her dad is oh, a... Right. In fact, she's such a Republican that, as recently as a few years ago, she voted for the impeachment <laughs> of William Jefferson Clinton. But like so many Republicans, she feels that the party has just drifted away from the ideals that she once held. Yeah, her, her and Elizabeth Warren. Back back when she was presumably campaigning for... <laughs> when she for was, you know, 50 or whatever. Campaigning for Goldwater. <laughs> but she's perfect. She's a woman. She's not too far left. Those are the two reasons offered. Now, many of the early scenes in the movie show various characters dealing with the woman issue. Many of them saying that, well, are they voting for somebody just for their gender? Is that reason enough to vote for somebody. Things have certainly changed since then because, I mean, don't even really need to say this, but, you know, Hillary Clinton, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren to a lesser degree, even Sarah Palin made the kind of like historic nature of uh, breaking the glass ceiling part of the text of their campaigns. 
Yeah. Now here, I think, you know, I have a lot of criticisms of this movie and mainly they're pretty simple criticisms like the movie's boring. There's not a lot going on. It again is just, I don't know, it's just interminably, I don't know how many of these movies there can possibly be. Just another movie that purports to have so much on its mind. Somehow when it came out, critics were like, wow, this, this movie is just, you know, incandescent with insight, you know, into the politics of our age. I don't get it. But my bigger criticism is just that the movie is kind of just discordant in what it's doing. Uh, there's there's a fundamental incoherence in how the film tries to treat the Joan Allen character and the kind of you know controversy, if you want, around her nomination. The main antagonist of the film, who Will has mentioned already, uh, Sheldon Runyon, uh, who's a uh, Republican from Illinois and a chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, played by Gary Oldman. We really see two different kinds of scenes featuring Oldman, and his character seems fundamentally incoherent, and there actually does seem to be some controversy. You know, Oldman after came out and said, or alleged, that the film had been edited in a way that was designed to make his character look less sympathetic. DreamWorks apparently has denied vociferously that there was any kind of manipulation done or, you know, that this happened at all. Uh, I was able to confirm that there was some pretty significant editing on the film. There's a whole subplot featuring Philip Baker Hall as, as Governor Hanson, so was as the Joan Allen character's father that was taken out of the movie where it turned out that he actually, without her knowing, helped her like nepotistically get her seat or something. And then when this was revealed, he was going to kill himself. That was just taken out of the movie, film but not included. But, you know, without being able to confirm Gary Oldman's allegation, it does seem like there's some funky stuff going on with the editing of this movie because his character in certain scenes, he's represented as maybe a bit of a scoundrel. You know, he's, he's willing to resort to sleazy means to uh, torpedo Lane Billings Hansen's uh, nomination. And yet in certain scenes, it seems like the reason he's doing that is because he just has so much darn respect for the office. And he doesn't think she has the, the, the royal jelly or whatever. And he's just, you know, he's standing on a matter of principle. But then, you know, throughout much of the rest of the movie and where the movie finally kind of ends up is, no, he's just like a completely misogynistic piece of shit. And like the what he what he puts her through is so outrageous. It ends up being pretty implausible, which is another problem with this movie. This film is so clearly a sort of response. It seems like it was even kind of billed as sort of a response to the Clinton Lewinsky affair and kind of, you know, the way that was uh, talked about in the press, etc. You know, all the hearings around it and, and that stuff. And yet the measures we see the Gary Old character resort to are kind of so extreme that it renders the whole thing a little bit implausible. But fundamentally, his character is just implausible. And the movie seems to be trying to have it both ways, where it's trying to do a kind of down the line critique of, you know, the double standards that women in politics are subjected to and be very clear about where it's coming down on that. In certain scenes, that seems the case. And these other ones, it's trying to build in some some nuance, some ambiguity, you know, maybe maybe this appointment by the Jeff Bridges character is some kind of, you know, token and, you know, you think about the great people, the great men who've, you know, filled this office and is she really up to it? And, you know, that would be trite and, and, and sexist as well. But at least the movie then would have some, like, tension in it. And it, it doesn't really... And we'll come back to the plot in a second, but this is especially true of the Jeff Bridges character, who, <laughs> amusingly, I found out uh, Barack Obama was once asked, who's your favorite TV president or movie president? And I thought he'd say, uh, you know, I thought... the, Bar the uh, Jed Bartlett Jed is Bartlett's, a little too on the yeah, nose. Yeah, I guess it's too on the nose, but he said... <laughs> He said Jackson Evans, played by Jeff Bridges in this movie. And it kind of makes sense when you watch uh, The Contender because Jeff Bridges is just a man without flaw. No matter what the, uh, you know, exigencies or pressures of politics are, he's just like, well, damn it, we'll go around them. I don't care how much political capital I spend. 
and even in the third act of the movie where the movie momentarily makes you think oh no he's actually going to cave to all this bad stuff coming from the republicans it turns out nope yeah i mean it, it fucking sucks i mean this is why this is not a serious movie this is one of those movies that you know it comes out or it came out i don't know if how a movie like this would do now but would come out at oscar time and it would get its four star review from it's got, it's got oscar nominations roger, crazy. E- roger ebert would you know give it four stars and you know people would genuflect but nobody watches this movie anymore because it's not good like there's nothing to think about there's nothing to remember there's no interesting tension and there's no interesting point made the only reason a movie like this exists is so that we can talk about it on this specific podcast I had an experience that's now becoming more and more common watching this movie, you know, just to speak to the viewing experience for a second, where for the first 10 minutes, I was optimistic. And then for the next 30 minutes, Will and I, our faces are just kind of falling and we're like, God damn it, it's not one of these bad movies. Can it be like 10% better than this? And then at a certain point, I don't think this happens to Will. I think this is where like the show has irony poisoned me more than him. But I sort of come out the other side and there's this scene where uh, Christian Slater, who, yeah, is some other scummy congressman in this movie he's just in one of those you know forgive me for american listeners i don't know the specific room in the white house he's in some room in the white house where there's just portraits of different presidents and he's just like looking at them reverentially and it's this it's this entirely serious scene and at this point i started having fun because i'm like this is so hack you know this is so stupid you know maybe him and jeff bridges are talking with a picture (laughs) of jfk (laughs) literally behind them staring down yeah this this is this is where the movie got me good because i was telling you like I was talking about how I just watched Knife in the Water again. Spe- oh. Speaking of problematic auteurs, by the way, but I was saying like, oh, it's so good. I was saying, you know, that three actors in it probably has one percent of the budget of this movie. And you look at that, and it's like, you know, what he does with the camera in that movie. Uh, there are always so many, you know, interesting visual ideas being communicated. And I said, wouldn't you love some of that in this movie? You know, something where you know the the camera expresses an idea, <laughs> and then. <laughs> 10 seconds later the movie hit me with JFK st- staring at them the, the, the camera's expressing something that's for sure I, lo- I love the idea that now in that room there'd be a picture of Donald Trump as well which is so perfect but these are the moments when we're doing this podcast where I start to think like maybe maybe I just live in the Truman Show and maybe the podcast is just maybe like my entire life has just been to be an actor unwittingly on TV where I do a podcast and you know none of these movies g- exist in the real world. But speaking of Roman Polanski, uh, which which I always say, <laughs> I was thinking while watching this about how the only good fictional politics movie of the last I want to say twenty years is The Ghost Rider because that's a movie that. A has only contempt for the institutions. It's a it's a totally black pilled movie. Yeah, it's just like oh yeah, the deep state controls everything. No reverence, <laughs> yeah. you know. <laughs> And B, it's trashy. It's a thriller. Like, it actually wants to entertain you. Uh, it leans into the trashy elements. And watching this movie, I thought, we could really go for this. Because as a procedural, it's DOA. Because I, yeah. I don't buy anything of the procedure. So if it's not even delivering on that level. I actually, have a, I have a point uh, I want to make on that, which is, despite being a kind of pretty established critic of the West Wing, something I will say about the West Wing is that it does at least try in most places, I think, to be... I don't know, somewhat probable. I think Bernie Sanders himself said that. He said that he liked the West Wing because I I think if you ask people in D.C., they will agree that it sort of shows how it works. (laughs) Yeah, I've never known. Perhaps he was being a little backhanded there, but... but (laughs) One one likes to think so. 
But the thing about the West Wing is that because the whole point of the show or, or one of the points of the show is just kind of all of the mise-en-scene of Washington, it can't be too outlandish in the things it's showing you, or at least, you know, I know pedants are going to come in and say, oh, well, what about that episode where they kill the, you know, guy from Kumar or whatever? Don't, don't at me with that stuff. You know what I'm talking about. I'm speaking generally here. But that's one of the things that makes the West Wing kind of work as like a procedural. This movie, if it was going to work as a procedural, would have to have the same fealty to reality. And I'm sorry, but the stuff that the Gary Oldman character does... Well, we should get a little more into the plot here before we get to that. The real inciting incident is that Gary Oldman, who who opposes Joan Allen's nomination, gets his hands on a scoop from her undergraduate years. When she was at university, a first-year university student, she engaged in group sex at a fraternity pledge night. And in fact, there are, there are photos of it. Photos that some unscrupulous blogger I've, hang on, I've written it down here. The Nichols Report. Right. And this doesn't make any sense either because the Nichols Report is clearly supposed to be like Drudge and yet it's clearly as- affiliated with the Washington Post, yeah, which I doesn't mean, really make any sense at all. This is the year 2000 and they, the makers of this movie still don't quite get the internet. <laughs> uh, although there is a scene where President Bridges is being asked this and he says, well, I'm not going to comment on unfounded allegations, especially not those made on the internet. <laughs> Which is kind of a little time capsule for what the internet was and how it was perceived back then. So yeah, Gary Oldman uses this as the sort of basis of, as the crux of his campaign against her. During her confirmation hearings, he and some of the other uh, Republicans are bringing this up. The confirmation hearings are very peculiar because, you know, they're quite hostile. Uh, Mariel Hemingway appears in the movie as the ex-wife of Joan Allen's current husband, And she's asked a lot about, you know, his infidelity and whether he cheated with her. And like, this is why as a procedural, the movie doesn't work because this actually wouldn't happen. What would happen is this information would get leaked to the press and the press would deal with it. Somebody in the press, if not the Washington Post, then, you know, drudge. And the hope would be from the opponents that it would snowball enough that the pressure would be on for them to resign. Her husband's infidelity wouldn't be the center of the hearing. Now, dramatically, it doesn't really work either, because throughout the vast majority of the movie, Jeff Bridges is just so unwavering as President Evans. No matter what happens, he's just like, no, I'm standing by my nominee for vice president. Now, then we get some third act uh, twists. And I don't know why I'm smiling as I say that, because these in no way save the movie at all. There's a scene where, uh, you know, he's being shaken down by Gary Oldman as the Republican congressman from Illinois, and he seems to capitulate. He seems to say, "Okay, tell you what, uh, you come out and you support this governor instead, this guy who tried to save the woman who, you know, drove off the bridge. You come out and issue a statement where you say you you support him. And then, you know, I'll I'll come out and announce later that day that I'm uh, I'm actually nominating him and Hanson will step aside. But, you know, even in this scene, it was so clear what was going to happen because the way Jeff Bridges as President Evans says this, he's like, I want you to say something that basically stakes your career on this guy's integrity or something. And it's like, okay, well, what's he got up his sleeve? And he's going to punk him with this big surprise party session where everyone gathers in one room where he can be ritualistically humiliated. That's right. And so then in front of all of them, Gary Oldman's present for this. He says, oh, yeah, by the way, we found out uh, the, the payments you made to this woman to get her to drive off the bridge. So it turns out that this uh, this governor is actually uh, a literal criminal and that Gary Oldman, who's come out earlier that day and said, yes, this is the only Democrat I would support for VP. He's a man of integrity and I would literally stake my career and reputation on it. Turns out the guy's literally a criminal. Gary Oldman's humiliated. And then we get uh, two, f- 
two further twists, okay? This is a movie of twists. There's a kind of bizarre scene where Jeff Bridges and Joan Allen are walking outside the White House. You know, she's going to be the nominee after all. All is well. Uh, and then he kind of gets her to describe in quite elaborate detail what actually happened at this frat party, which highly inappropriate, by the way inconsistent with everything we've seen from his character so far. Well, he's one of those like great presidents in one of these movies who acts whatever the vibe is for the moment. Like, the character in the movie would be so much better if he were a bit more of a freak. Like... Could you imagine if the Jeff Bridges character had some quirk that, for example, he was a real stickler to the rules? Or, you know, you look at people like Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, like all of them, they're freaks. They're not normal people. And like you can, you can, it's true. It's true. They're weirdos. Um, and I don't know. I, I would say one of these things is not like the other. But, they're different well. in a million ways. But like you, you, a dinner conversation with Bernie Sanders would not, would not be normal. You just talk about Eugene Debs. What do you mean? <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> But like the Jeff Bridges character is endlessly authoritative, endlessly affable, endlessly a stickler to principle, endlessly everything. There's nothing weird about him. There's nothing. Ab- so at this scene towards the end where they're like sitting on the White House lawn yeah. smoking a stogie. I think you're right. It's trying to add a wrinkle to his character, but it doesn't it doesn't really work. But then there's a further twist uh, where it turns out that these photos of Hansen at this orgy are not actually of her. There were no photos. The incident did take place, but it just sort of passed into campus lore. And then so Jeff Bridges says, well, so why didn't you just, you could have just, you had the truth on your side. You could have just denied that these were photos of you and you would have been telling the truth. And she says, well, you know, principles only mean something. You stick by them when they're inconvenient. That's so so uh, stupid. And, and so I was not even going to uh, dignify this. And he says, okay, well, you know. I so, re- so wait, like somebody can say literally anything about you. <laughs> and as long as you deem it unserious, you just won't even deny it. Well, she, what she does do is she refuses to do the press conference with him the next day where she says, okay, so it's great. We're going to go ahead with your nomination. We're going to call a press conference tomorrow and you're just going to tell the truth, which is it's not you in the phone. And she says, I won't do that. So after all this, she's not going to be the nominee. And this is where we get to one of my favorite scenes in the movie. Honestly, one of my favorite scenes in any movie, (laughs) which is the epic Jeff Bridges speech. Move over, Chaplin. This, (laughs) This is Chaplin and the Great Dictators got absolutely nothing on this. So he goes and he addresses a joint session of Congress and he gives one of the most epic speeches uh, ever, at the end of which he announces that actually Senator Hansen, who is not even present, there's a sort of weird montage where as he's giving this epic speech, she's running through a graveyard that's clearly like a military cemetery or something. It must be Arlington. As if to suggest that she's fought her own war. That's right. By the way, I, fi- I forgot to mention the epic speech she gives in, in her uh, confirmation hearing where, you know, she keeps getting asked about her remarks in favor of the separation of church and state. And she says, you know what? I'm an atheist, but I go to church. The church I go to is this very chapel of democracy. And Mr. Chairman, I stand for the separation of church and state. And the reason that I stand for that is the same reason that I believe our forefathers did. It is not there to protect religion from the grasp of government, but to protect our government from the grasp of religious fanaticism. I may be an atheist, but that does not mean I do not go to church. I do go to church. The church I go to is the one that emancipated the slaves, that gave women the right to vote, that gave us every freedom that we hold dear. My church is this very chapel of democracy, 
that we sit in together, and I do not need God to tell me what are my moral absolutes. I need my heart, my brain, and this church. And you know, when she's running through the Arlington Cemetery, that's kind of the movie saying, that's what these people died for, you know? They died so that a lame duck Democratic president could appoint a former Republican as his vice president for six months. We learn uh, of her politics that she's for term limits, that she's for campaign reform. That's the phrase that's used. (laughs) Not campaign finance reform, campaign reform. She's uh, in favor of making it illegal to sell cigarettes to our youth. She wants to stop genocide, and she favors the separation of church and state. Anyway, uh, the movie closes in the most perfectly West Wingish way possible, where Jeff Bridges just does one epic speech, and both sides of Congress stand up and applaud, and everybody woots and cheers, and everyone lived happily ever after. And not only that, the villainous Gary Oldman he storms out, walks out in shame. That's why this is not this is not a serious movie, you know. <laughs> But, you know, one of the things we did to pass the time while watching the movie was just sort of speculate like, well, you know, what would a movie like this? You know, what in this movie is even plausible now? I mean, the movie's depiction of sort of right wing prudishness and moral hysteria has sort of morphed and evolved in in different ways since this movie. Bill Clinton, by the way, exists in the world of this movie. Very strange. The, the, the Lewinsky scandal exists in the world of this movie. So this movie takes place like presumably eight years after that. Yeah, I mean, I was saying during the film, the only way that you can, the only way the sort of implausibility, the sort of exaggerated quality of uh, you know, a lot of the hearings and, and other things that you see in this movie, the only way that that kind of is defensible or even coherent is if you imagine that the director and the writers saw the film as sort of you know there but for the grace of god go us if we continue down this path yeah sort of a cautionary tale about like we've started down the river and if we carry down this path we're gonna end up at the heart of darkness you know but it is so emblematic of where i don't know mainstream political discourse was at this time coming out of the 90s where you know the the parties are so close to get you know newt newt gingrich and bill clinton are so close together ideologically that's like the tension has to come from somewhere so you just substitute you know really theatrical partisanship for actual ideological contestation and then that's now what politics is and then if you don't like that and you're fed up with it your response instead of being like well what if we just got back to like a politics of ideological debate you know what if what if the democratic party actually you know tried to represent you know the majority of working people in the country instead of being the party of like affluent suburbanites or whatever instead of being people who are literally trying to fast track newt gingrich's agenda through congress Instead of that, the weepy response that, you know, you give that this movie gives is in the spirit of, you know, primary colors and God knows how many other movies we've watched for this podcast is stop being so tough on politicians. Hey, you know, their politics are irrelevant, so irrelevant. We're barely even going to, you know, none of these people are ideological figures, or at least not in ways that we're going to bother to tell you. The scope of politics is just whether the people there are good people or not, just whether they're principled or not about what it doesn't really matter. What does matter is whether they give, you know, epic speeches and whether, you know, they're they're sort of uh, performatively decent uh, to one another. And then, you know, eight months after this movie came out or something, the planes hit the towers and they figured out a new narrative for what politics were. It doesn't matter what I have to say for myself. No, oh, it doesn't. Well, it seems to me, Mr. Chairman, that all you can claim about me, claim, is that I had sex. Well, deviant sex. Oh, who deviant? Who says it was deviant? I do. From what I say, the American people will believe. And you know why? 
because I'll have a very big microphone in front of me. I was alluding to Roger Ebert's four-star review earlier, and I mean, Ebert is very useful in sort of getting a sense of what the movie wants you to think about it, as well as sort of putting yourself back in the frame of mind of a 2000-era viewer. He gave it four stars, I assume? Yeah, needless to say. Four, four star, a perfect, a perfect fucking four oh from this man. <laughs> The movie is frankly partisan. Its sentiments are liberal and democratic. Its villains, conservative and Republican. When I asked its star, Jeff Bridges, if the plot was a veiled reference to Monica Gate, he smiled. Veiled, he said? I don't think it's so veiled. The difference between Senator Lane Hansen and President Clinton is that when zealots start sniffing her laundry, she simply refuses to answer their questions. It's none of your business, she tells GOP rep Shelley Runyon, Gary Oldman, whose inquiring mind wants to know. Ebert's review later ends, This is one of those rare movies where you leave the theater having been surprised and entertained, and then start arguing. The contender takes sides and is bold about it. Most movies are like puppies that want everyone to like them. That's an interesting review. Just a diff- just a document from a time when, like, I don't know, what were the 90s political movies? Like, the idea of a movie that is liberal as part of its affect being a novelty is very strange. Do, do I detect correctly that Ebert might have even been, like, a little bothered by, like, the fact that the movie is not sort of bipartisan? I think that challenged him, you know? <laughs> I do think it did. I mean, he was he was a staunch Democrat in real life, but I think I think he also found it a little liberating. Well, anyway, that is Ebert's take. Uh, We about done here. Well, I don't know. I kind of do have one more thing I want to get off my chest. You know, thanks for listening, folks. Napoleon once said when asked to explain the lack of great statesmen in the world that to get power, you need to display absolute pettiness. To exercise power, you need to show true greatness. Such pettiness and greatness are rarely found in one person. I look upon the events of the past week, and I've never come so to grips with that quotation. And so, ladies and gentlemen of this Congress, it pains my soul to tell you that you have brought blood and shame under this great dome. Your leadership has raised the stakes of hate to a level where we can no longer separate the demagogue from the truly inspired. And believe this, there are traitors among us. And I'm not talking about those of you who sided against your party leadership. I'm talking about those of you who are patriots to your party, but traitors to the necessary end result that of righteousness, the truth, the concept of making the American dream blind to gender. And you know, I am not free of blame. Right from the start, I should have come down here, pointed a finger your way, pointed a finger your way, and asked you, have you no decency, sir? Mr. Runyon, you may walk out on me, you may walk out on this body, but you cannot walk out on the will of the American people. Americans are good people. They're a just people, Mr. Runyon, and they will forgive you, but they will not forget. Hate and ego have no place residing in what my good friend Lane Hansen calls this chapel of democracy. So let me make one thing clear. You come at us with whatever weapons that you have in your arsenal, but there is no weapon as powerful as that of an idea whose time has come. A woman will serve in the highest level of the executive. Simple as that. Yesterday I spoke with Lane Hansen. I told her that she could decide her own destiny if she wanted to continue her fight for confirmation. That I would stand beside her. She has asked me to allow her to step aside. She told me that she wanted my administration to end on a note of triumph and not controversy. Understand, those of you who work to bring Lane Hansen down, that she asked to have her name withdrawn from consideration, not because she isn't great, but because she isn't petty. Because those two conflicting leadership traits could not live as one within her body or her soul. Greatness 
comes in many forms. Sometimes it comes in the form of sacrifice. That's the loneliest form. Now it turns out that Lane Hansen is a woman, an American of devout principle, and she has inspired me to act alike, and I cannot accept Senator Hansen's withdrawal. And I'm now calling an immediate vote of confirmation of Lane Hansen. And Mr. Speaker, I would like to make this a live roll call. I want to see the faces of those of you who would eliminate the possibility of greatness in American leadership because of half-truths, lies, and innuendos. I will not be deterred by partisan I will not be deterred by misogyny. I will not be deterred by hate. You have now come face to face with my will. Confirm my nominee, heal this nation, and let the American people explode into this new millennium with the exhilaration of being true to the glory of this democracy. Damn, he's good. <laughs> now watch this drive. <laughs>